now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Hello, and thank you for inviting me into your ear holes. I am your host, Jason Kleberg, and you're listening to the Force 5 Podcast. Today's guest is filmmaker and comedian Ricky Glore, and today we're going to be talking about top five horror movie masks, and I tell you what, I was very surprised at how much Ricky knows about movies. He came with some deep cuts, and I was kind of blown away by his cinematic knowledge, which makes me even more excited to see his film All Your Friends Are Dead, for which there is a Kickstarter up right now. We'll talk more about that in just a bit. First, got a couple things I want to talk about that I saw this past week, and we've got some other additions to last week's list thanks to social media. Again, last week's topic was top five final films, and uh, people on Reddit spoke out this week. We've got Long Trail 13, says Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, which I had not thought of. Code Wench says Nobuhiku Obayashi's Labyrinth of Cinema, surreal and bizarre and amazing in every way. Best I can think of is Millennium Actress, as done by Neil Breen if we pretend that Neil Breen is actually a competent filmmaker. Thank you, Code Wench, for that. Anthony Palumbo says Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut is the first that comes to mind, of course. Vincent Gardiastin says Sarah Band is Ingmar Bergman's last film, and it's great. MST3KGF says Charles Crichton came out of decades of retirement to do A Fish Called Wanda. Good call there. And finally, uh, L.M. Klimov's Come and See, which, holy moly, I'm surprised. I'm very surprised that I forgot that one. Oh, and P. Scorpion says The Sacrifice by Tarkovsky, as well as Yi Yi by Edward Yang. Thank you for those suggestions. So a couple more final films for people to go check out. On to this week's stuff. The first thing I watched this week was HBO's new limited series, The White Lotus. The goal is to disappear behind our masks as pleasant, interchangeable helpers. It's tropical kabuki. Aloha. A happy beer. We're on our honeymoon. You're such valued guests. Welcome to the White Lotus. Are they bigger? Nicole, they're fucking huge. I haven't seen them in a while. It's cancer. Swole balls. Did they biopsy your balls, Doc? Not yet. Am I interrupting? I know it's only your honeymoon. Oh my God, look at her face. Rachel, you were such a beautiful bride, but also very pale. But now you have a little more color and it looks great. Thanks. A bunch of self-centered rich white folks stay at a fabulous Hawaiian resort called the White Lotus for a week. During that week, we get to watch them whine and twist themselves into knots over the stupidest stuff, leading to one person leaving the island in a body bag. There's a lot of good within The White Lotus. The performances by everyone are great. There wasn't one actor who didn't hold their ground. Mike White's writing was excellent, and the show is wonderfully shot. Unfortunately, it's basically the same story I've seen so many times before, and when it was over, I just felt empty. Speaking for the audience, we get it. For the most part, ultra-white rich people suck. And the worst part about them in real life is that they never seem to face any consequences for their actions. So when I watch a show about terrible, ultra-rich white people, it better end with some comeuppance. And when these people leave the White Lotus, just about everyone is the same as when they arrived. And that is my real problem 
with spending six hours with this show. Ultimately, this is an exercise in frustration. I don't think you're supposed to enjoy watching people like this, but there should be a moment of catharsis at the end, and that moment was absent, and it was by design. We see people getting away with being douchebags in real life every single day. Don't make me spend six hours watching the same thing on TV. That's The White Lotus if you're interested. It's on HBO Max right now. I also dug into my Vinegar Syndrome box this week to watch Through the Fire from 1988. Five weeks after her sister has gone missing, Sandra Curtis comes to town to find her. She enlists the help of a local police officer with nothing better to do named Nick, and together they stumble onto a group of satanic losers who have summoned a demon named Moloch, and this may be connected to Sandra's sister. This regional southwestern film was released on VHS as The Gates of Hell Part 2. Through the Fire is Gary Markham's only directorial credit, and it's easy to see why. After this pile of trash, no one else would give him another shot. Everything about this movie is subpar, so let's start with the direction. Shots are not composed in interesting ways. From the very first frame, you can tell that this film is going to be a hack job, as a car rolls into frame with the bottom of the tires cut off in a wide shot. And unfortunately, it's all downhill from there. Most of the film is framed on very close-up shots, done intentionally not to put you in the action, but to hide the fact that it was probably filmed on a budget of couch cushion change. There's one shot in particular of two guys rock climbing that was probably done in somebody's backyard. As such, the film never feels like it's giving you room to breathe and doesn't allow for much of a sense of space. The action is radically edited and doesn't make any sense. One scene that features a home invasion is so clumsily edited that during a shotgun blast near the end of it, you'll never know who actually fired the shot. There's also a bunch of sloppy POV shots when the monster is chasing someone, but it looks like the view from a remote-controlled car. The actors aren't given much to work with here in terms of material, and as bad as the words on the page probably were, they were even worse when these goofballs are delivering the dialogue out loud. In one scene, Nick nearly has his hand pulled into a garbage disposal, and after freeing it, he looks at his palm and, and in all complete seriousness says, I thought I was going to lose you. Nick is supposed to be this playboy tough guy cop who spouts I am very badass lines like I read my magazines back to front, but I got more of a loser vibe from him, especially when you watch him stick his finger into a mug of hot coffee and is seemingly surprised that he burns himself. Or when you see an old plate of dried up mac and cheese sitting on a dry dish rack in the background of his ratty apartment. He gets wrapped up into this mess after he has to escort Sandra home because she's drunk and getting rowdy at a local watering hole. She calls him the next day and asks him to look for her sister, so he just takes a week off from work and does it. There's no struggle, no questions. Late in the film, he adds, hijacks an old woman's car and leaves her on the side of the road to the list of reasons why his character sucks. He's also running with a shotgun in one scene, and he almost drops it, and then he starts swinging it around like he's trying to wrangle an out-of-control grocery bag, and they just kept the take in the film. This tells us either the editor had nothing else to use, or they really wanted us to think of Nick as a complete and utter doofus. Speaking of that running scene, it's absurdly edited, cutting between Nick and Sandra running in oddly framed shots of the outside of a building. Sandra is played by the absolutely stunning Tamara Haxt, whose claim to fame was being the fourth runner-up of the 1985 Miss Texas pageant. Unfortunately, she's not an actor, and her reactions to Nick seem more geared towards the intro of a TGIF show than someone whose sister is probably a rotting corpse. Her two best character traits are that she bugs everyone non-stop and also has clearly seen Die Hard. The villains are a handful of interchangeable dorks who you won't be able to tell apart aside from one who wears a pocket protector filled with pens and has taped up glasses like Urkel. They summoned a demon by using a pentagram Ouija board. 
We can only speculate on what they wanted to do that for because a medium named PJ that we'll instead call Exposition Dump Lady tells us that the people let the devil in for personal gain like, yes, quote, bass boats, stock tips, and sex. The three things every evil mastermind wants. They're extremely incompetent. The five are bested by Nick, Sandra, and Exposition Dump Lady while they're sleeping. There's also a woman in their group, and maybe I just dozed off during this part, but I never saw her get her comeuppance because she just kind of disappears after the home invasion scene. Now, Through the Fire is technically a thriller-slash-monster movie, so you probably want to know how the action, gore, and monster effects are. Well, not good. As the film was limping towards its inevitable conclusion, I saw a showdown coming inside of an abandoned building and I was pretty excited. This must be the reason Vinegar Syndrome chose this film, I thought. Turns out they probably just chose it because it was cheap. The showdown pits our evil goons against a mysterious team that we're introduced to about an hour into the film that combats evil, whatever the fuck that means. I didn't really care, but they had guns and one had an eye patch, so I was on board. Once they get into the building, everyone that dies is unfortunately killed off screen. You see a character, it cuts to a wall, and you hear a bang, and then it's just on to the next one. One of the bad guys dies, and you don't even know who it is. It just shows their back and three bullet holes inside of it. Nearly the entire 20-minute scene feels like no one worked on the same day, and they just shot their scenes separately. As for the gore, there isn't much, and you don't see the monster until the last five minutes. Moloch ends up inhabiting the body of what looks like Napoleon Dynamite's brother Kip, and then finally jumps to the body of one of the monster hunters, and we get to see an okay transformation scene, but... It's cut to hell, so you don't actually see any of it happening. Other than that, nothing to see here. Through the Fire is another stinker scraped from the bottom of the 1980s barrel. It's bad all around, and I cannot find one thing about it that I can recommend. Vinegar Syndrome put way more effort into this release than was probably warranted. The slipcover, though, is the best thing about this Blu-ray. There's a director's commentary I've not yet listened to, but kind of want to, just to hear some of the absurdity explained. After all that sour, it's time for a little sweet. Today's sponsor is Sweetums. You know them for their delicious products like Bobby Bars, Sugar Splash, everyone's favorite trail mix substitute called Nuts and Stuff, which is a mix of nuts, licorice, gummy bears, red hots, pretzels, and beef jerky, and Metal Yums, candy-scented 11-inch industrial construction screws, which are, of course, not made for consumption. But times are a-changing, and Sweetums is ready to introduce what's sure to be the most popular product in your supermarket health food section, Nutri-Yum Bars. We start with 100% all-natural corn, grown by your neighbors here in the great state of Indiana. Then we add just a little bit of Sweetums corn syrup made right here in our factory, the same way the past 40 years. Then we add a little love, a little drop of sunshine, and some other stuff. It's that simple. What do you think of that, Denver? Nutri-Yummy! <laughs> you tell them, Shoelace. Head to Sweetums.com and enter the promo code F5PODCAST for a free bag of Mike and Plenty's with your first order. Remember, if you can't beat them, Sweetums. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Ricky Glore. Pre-pandemic, you could find him touring the country working as a stand-up comedian, but currently, he's working on releasing his first feature horror film, All Your Friends Are Dead. How's it going, Ricky? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I mean, during pandemic, this was my outlet doing podcasts because I thought Zoom stand-up shows were the worst. <laughs> so uh, I also created during that time a a puppet uh, news parody show in the vein of Weekend Update, but called Weekend Pup Date with Norm McDonfell. <laughs> 
I had to stop doing nice. that because reading the news and producing a new half hour of news parody every week made me want to shoot myself in the face. I can understand that. I can definitely understand that. Um, so all your friends are dead. Right now, there's a Kickstarter up. Why don't you tell us a little bit first about the film, and then we'll talk about the Kickstarter. Yeah, the the film's central story is semi-autobiographical. Uh, the co-director and producer and DP, Nicholas Hyans, and I, we developed the story together. We're both 35-year-old males, and we grew up going to high school together. We started working, doing a cable access sketch comedy show. We filmed things off and on. He was the assistant DP on the horror short that I filmed last year, Call. And we were looking at our age, 35 years old, and, you know, when you're 20, 15 years later to 35 seems like forever. When you're 35, <laughs> 15 years later to 50 seems real close. And we we knew that if we didn't attempt to make a feature-length film, a 90-minute legitimate film, we would regret it. So we started talking about what a story could be for that film. And we started talking about like any possible regrets or societal pressures or judgments of where people at 35 should be or that stigma of where you think you should be or what you should accomplish. And I started reflecting on being someone who did sports my whole life but got hurt my junior year of high school and then ended up doing theater, which put me on the trajectory to where I am now, I thought, wow, what if there was a bizarro universe where I didn't get hurt? And I probably would have gotten a wrestling scholarship. And what do you do with that? <laughs> so as much of doing sports and kind of being king should have turned mountain, I thought of this character that kind of represents myself of what if I'd have gotten hurt later would have lost connection to all of my closest friends in high school because um, we would have been separated by, by college. And then after getting hurt, just never finding footing. Maybe because of the hurt and the depression, I would have maybe become an alcoholic because that's definitely a gene in my family. Um, maybe I would have been dependent on painkillers. Probably would have, wouldn't have been very responsible. And what if one day I'd have woken up and instead of in this real world with me thinking, oh, I would regret if I had ever made a feature movie, if I'd have woken up and been like, oh, my life is worthless. The best days of my life were in high school with those friends making the winning touchdown or winning state at wrestling. So the lead character, Matt Wilby, goes through that. And he has this kind of breakfast club-like group of friends from high school that he's lost touch you know, like the Brian character, the nerd, he's grown up to be like a Jeff Bezos sort. <laughs> um, the Claire, his ex-girlfriend, has grown up to be a divorce divorcee with two kids. Um, and I'm basically Andy, the Emilio Estevez character, but just sitting in the bar being like, you wouldn't believe how many yards I ran and how many touchdowns <laughs> I scored. Like, people You're like, like the Uncle Rico. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> and... But with like less pretense and uh, just more depression and more sadness, getting to the point where he's like, you know what, um, I'm going to end it all. Best years are behind me. I, I can't do anything to write this. I'm overweight. I'm a drunk. Uh, everyone thinks I'm a loser. Even if I don't know what they think, I think they think I'm a loser. And when they find out who I used to be and they see who I am now, it's just even more depressing. 
So he writes an email to his pack because in high school they were the Woodrow Heisen Wolves. And so the close knit group of friends were dubbed the pack. And he writes them all letting them know that he's going to kill himself and he's going to do it at the last place they all hung out together, which was a campsite they found uh, after graduation. Well, right before he gets the chance to kill himself, the pack shows up and stops him. And they, they know, look, we weren't, we weren't there for you. Uh, we're here now. We want to show you. You inspired us when we were younger. Maybe we can, in return, help you. Little do they know, there's an escaped masked killer in the woods looking to pick them off one by one, which makes Matt confront literally life or death. He has to go through a fight or fl- flight and decide, do I want to die? Because if I do, I can just walk into a machete across <laughs> the throat. Uh, if I don't, I, I have to actively choose to live. And uh, I, I, before doing interviews for the Kickstarter in the movie, me and Nick talked about like, well, what can we talk about? What can we talk about? And I was like, well, you know, the, the title of the movie is called All Your Friends Are Dead. There's going to be a lot of deaths and they're all going to die. But we're not going to tell you when or like how. Um, our favorite thing about the movie was when we were approaching it is as much as I enjoy, like, say, the Friday the 13th movies for what they are, it always boggled my mind that they came out year after year and did gangbusters because those movies only really are good for like the last 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and I was like, well, you know, maybe that's what people remembered was just that. And then a year later, they're like, no, I remembered liking that movie. Let's go see the next one. And they're like, oh, shit, these characters suck. <laughs> I don't relate to them at all. Um, so I thought like, well, what if the horror, what if the teen slasher movie grew up? And what if we did basically the last 20 minutes of a Friday the 13th movie in the middle of the movie? And then we see the repercussions of that where we can ratchet up the, the gore and the kills even more in the third act in a way that you don't see coming. Well, I've seen the the Kickstarter video, and it looks like there is a lot of gore in it, and it looks like it's practically done, which seems awesome. 100% practical effects. Our uh, special effects makeup team has amazing credits. They worked on Haunt, uh, which is a little oh, cool. tip of the hat to, to, the, to the subject we're going to be talking about tonight, our top five. <laughs> the guys who wrote uh, A Quiet Place did this amazing indie horror film, Haunt, which I think is still on Amazon Prime. Um, they also worked on Terror Trips, which was originally titled On Location, being released next year with Felicia Rose from Sleepaway Camp. Um, and Candy Corn, which is a, a cult horror movie. Hillbilly Elegy. And then just a slew of other things, as well as one of the biggest haunts in the United States called the USS Nightmare, which sits on the Ohio River. So yeah, this team has worked with me since Call, the short film, and then my last short film, Racist. And they just, they blow me away every time they, they come up with a gag. And it's nice because we Jason Irving, the head of makeup and special effects, we have a nice shorthand where we were having a production meeting at a Dunkin' Donuts. And uh, both of us were going on like three hours of sleep because I had just driven in from a show the night before. And he was working on a movie in Cincinnati. And he's like, all right, I know this one death in the script. We have, we have it storyboarded that. Uh, character's walking along and he just sees limbs from uh, the killer chainsawing him into little pieces. And you just find body parts. He's like, we could still do that easy. But what if this? 
you see a limb here, you see a limb there, and then you see his entrails, <laughs> like a mm. like a trail of breadcrumbs leading him <laughs> to the upper half of the the character cut in half, and his guts just spilling out, laying on the ground. And I and he he pulled out this napkin and started doodling, and he's like, and this is how we can do it: we can dig a hole in the ground and blah 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 blah. And I was like, awesome. Uh, will it cost any more in the budget? <laughs> And he said, no. And I said, yes, absolutely. We can do it. That's awesome. And speaking of budget, <laughs> we're going to need some help with this one. And right now there's a Kickstarter up in order to support the release of this film. And the Kickstarter has some awesome benefits. You can go right now to the Kickstarter page for All Your Friends Are Dead and see this info. But there's a lot of great rewards that people can look forward to. And you know me, big proponent of physical media. There's even a reward where you get a Blu-ray exclusive um, what are some of those other rewards that people can look forward to if they support you we purposely wanted to keep it easy right so many campaigns have 50 rewards that it's a little yeah. overwhelming to look at like you get a postcard you get a double-sided postcard you get a, <laughs> the dog's paw print on that postcard like it's like cool uh what i know i would like is a social media shout out just giving getting props to having contributed to indie creators, whatever that is, if it's a board game, a musical instrument, or a movie, I I like putting some money out there and not expecting too much in return. So that's twenty bucks. Then there's fifty bucks where it's a name in the credits, and you get that social media shout out. And if you're getting your name in the credits, you probably want to get the third and last perk, which is that coveted Blu-ray you mentioned. And there's a lot of reasons to get the Blu-ray, and I'm trying not to sound like a salesman. I'm just trying to sound like someone that is talking you into the best possible. I'm just trying to get you into this car today, sir. Jason, you're going to look good in this car <laughs> if you spend a little bit extra money on the undercoat painting. Um, but the Blu-ray, we're limiting to 100 copies. And this is before distribution. We don't know what's going to happen with this movie. We don't know when it would have a quote-unquote wide release to a general public. Because that's something that takes festivals, which takes money, which is why we're doing this crowdfund. A lot of people uh, don't realize how expensive it is to get your movie in front of people. But the Blu-ray, limited to 100 copies, it's going to have behind-the-scenes footage, deleted scenes, a lot of great special features, as well as an exclusive commentary track that will only be on these copies because once if we cross our fingers get picked up and dis distributed um that commentary track won't come on any other future release we nice. would record a new one based on whoever bought the movie and, and produced a, a new release of that so that is another reason to entice you to get it and you get all the other perks you get your name in the credits and you get that social media shout out us saying this person got the dvd their names in the credits they're cemented in time whether this movie is the next phantasm or it's the next the room whatever <laughs> if like if it becomes popular you are going to be associated with it forever i'm a i'm a sucker for a good commentary so you definitely have my attention i'm leaving with this car today hopefully we get some others to do the same now obviously horror is a, a topic that you are very close to it, it seems like you're a horror fan, even outside of this movie. What are some of those favorite films of yours that are not in the horror genre? Favorite films that are not in the horror genre? I, uh, in college for my senior project, wrote a hypothetical play about Charlie Chaplin. 
if he would have been called before the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, by Martin Dyes. And I did that because I fell in love with Chaplin's story. Um, I, I think he is the curator a lot of, of what modern comedy has become, not just slapstick, but wit. And sure. uh, so any of his films, but if I had to pick The Great Dictator, I mean, yeah. you you don't get parody any better than that. Even it was so good that Hitler himself rented a copy, thought it was hilarious, but thought it was so funny and so good that he banned it being shown in Germany. I mean, rightfully what so. What a selfish prick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but Hitler, he, he cut his mustache so he would look more appealing to his constituents. So he would look like Chaplin. Oh, wow. His, I didn't know whose came first. It, yeah, it, it's Chaplin's, the little tramp character. Um, I also just love the history of Chaplin. There is a, a fabled, rumored story that L. Ron Hubbard and Chaplin were at a Hollywood party, and Chaplin bet L. Ron that he couldn't turn one of his science fiction stories into a religion that people would follow. <laughs> so I guess Chaplin is to blame maybe for Scientology. Um, Chaplin also ushered in a lot of uh, independent film or gave some some due notice to maybe some filmmakers that wouldn't necessarily get it with Mary Pickford and um, drawing the blank on the other third that created United Artist, um, hmm. the film studio. I mean, I, I'm just really sticking on uh, Chaplin because a lot of other stuff ends up being, I mean, like, look, I love Back to the Future. I love uh, Dirty Harry. I love the Hope and Crosby movies, the Martin Lewis movies. I grew up on those, Abbott and Costello. But like mm -hmm. David Cronenberg, even his non-horror, oh, it's so good. History of Violence is phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Um, Eastern Promises is phenomenal. I just, I, I've been getting a kick out of my friends who aren't necessarily versed in Cronenberg, having them go through and watch his whole catalog. Um, De Palma, a lot of his are in the suspense thriller horror genre. And a lot of people say they're derivative of Hitchcock, which they are. But he is one of the last filmmakers that really got to do whatever he wanted to do with film. Um, and then, you know, films like Shawshank Redemption are great, easy, easy watches. Um, James Bond movies, even though they're extremely problematic, I think like most comedy films, you can still watch them in a time capsule kind of uh, vision. Of just being yeah. like, oh, yes, this is when they were made. You know, it's really interesting to see the juxtaposition between Sean Connery and Roger Moore. Sean Connery, a man who bragged in Playboy magazine, saying uh, women deserve to be hit every now and then, um, versus Roger Moore, who had to file a restraining order against his wife for physically abusing him. And when you think of that and you go back and watch your film, their films, it's like, oh, yeah, that's the difference between the two of them. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. And then you get the uh, the zero trouble Pierce Brosnan later on too. <laughs> Man, Pierce Pierce had uh, Pierce had a tough road to hoe. He came out of the gate with an amazing script with Goldeneye, 
but wasn't yet polished enough to be the Bond that he could be. And by the time he did have a little bit of grit and gray in his hair and die another day, it was too late. Oh, yeah. And the writing just got so bad. Bonkers. Like, World is Not Enough is not a terrible script. Denise Richards as Christmas (laughs) Jones also finishing the movie with one of the worst last lines of the movie, of the Bond movies, with Pierce saying, I thought Christmas only came once a year. (laughs) Yeah, I feel bad for Pierce because (laughs) I think he would have really done well if they'd have taken a little bit more serious with him. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then they obviously went into Daniel Craig, which got uh, like the other the pendulum swung the other way on the serious scale. But I definitely appreciate those ones, too. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I love Timothy Dalton. I would have loved if Timothy Dalton had been in GoldenEye. Um, I don't love Living Daylights. I actually prefer License to Kill because I think it's brutal. Uh, and I love um, the villains, including a young appearance by Benicio Del Toro. Uh, and also Wayne Wayne Newton in it. And Robert Davi is... Robert Davi with that... Uh, is it a lizard or is it a... Um, it's like oh, an iguana, a, isn't it? It's an iguana, yes. Yes, 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 yes. And just the the mounds of cocaine. Like, <laughs> I yeah, I mean, I love me some James Bond, even though I can recognize and be like, oh, yeah, this guy is not to be emulated. He's a piece of shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, speaking of piece of shits, <laughs> it's time to talk about some murderers, because we're talking about masked killers what inspired this list topic for you we're doing top five horror movie masks when i come up with an idea for horror one of the first things i do is try to figure out if the killer is a masked killer what is that going to look like and i have to figure that out before i really write anything else i might have a basic outline but i really need to know what that image is and what my characters that are going to be dealing with it are going to be seeing. Um, and so I decided that for this masked killer, his storyline is he escaped from a local uh, institution and his outfit is brown nurse scrubs. He's wearing big, heavy duty black doctor surgical gloves. And his mask is a sensory deprivation mask, which is a very archaic thing that they no longer really use, but it is a leather white zipped hood with inside a brown leather mask with almost the mouth and the eyes almost sewn up shut all the way. And it had straps on it, almost like a straight jacket, but for your face. And this would be used for patients that had excessive biting, um, screaming, and it needed to be basically put in their own dark room just around their face. Um yeah, and like the way that the if with we have the the outside white leather opened up, and he almost looks like that dinosaur from Jurassic Park that spits the acid at Newman. Nice. Uh, so he has a, a great kind of a reptile. Talking about iguanas, kind of feel to him. So I thought I was like, wow, what other classic masks throughout the years, excluding? And I'm sorry if anyone that sees this title like great. Kill horror movie killer masks is like oh they're gonna talk about the William Shatner Halloween mask or they're gonna talk about the Jason hockey mask or they're gonna talk about Leatherface or Ghostface or whatever face face uh sorry we're not 
going to. Like, I didn't put any of those really on my list. I don't know if you did. I did not. I stuck with ones that I thought needed more attention that were great masks, but not necessarily those masks that you're going to find at the Spirit Halloween store this October. Exactly. Thank you. And also, the reason I do this is to maybe... Maybe we have a a horror fan that hasn't really reached back into the treasure trove of great horror that doesn't get the props that the uh, the famed franchises get. So maybe we're going to yeah. open up your brain a little bit more to some uh, some other classic visuals that you don't know that they're classic until we tell you. Do you like all of the films on your list? <laughs> <laughs> It's so <laughs> it's so funny you said that because there are like two that I'm like don't like this movie love yeah. this look feel like they squandered <laughs> it um man and it, it's a it's a great filmmaker too well he's a limited filmmaker he has some great films and things based off of writings of his which we'll get to later and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about it's a mess of a film even the director's <laughs> cut but like. The mask is so, and the look of the killer is so good. I was like, I just wish, and I think they have in comic book form, I wish this character would have its own movie, not surrounded by this turd burger that it's like <laughs> in between the lettuce and tomato of. Hmm, I wonder if uh, if this is one that's on my list. Yeah, I, I'm looking at my list right now. And it's funny because this topic gives me a chance to talk about some films that have never been brought up on this show. But I think out of all five of mine, I only think one is a really good movie. And the other four just have really great masks, but don't really add up to a good movie, which is kind of fun. I also noticed that doing my list, like organizing this, all five of mine are from different countries. Ricky Glore, you ready to get to this list? Let's do this. You know what's going to happen? Top five horror masks. Go ahead and kick us off. What's number five on your list, Ricky Glore? Top five horror masks. We're starting off exactly with what made me giggle like a little schoolgirl when you said, are there any of these movies you don't don't particularly (laughs) like? And it's Nightbreed. Boom and glory. They were warned to stay away. Ain't nothing but dead folk. But didn't listen. Now, they're no longer lovers. For she's become the hunted, and he's become one of the Nightbreed. From the creator of Hellraiser, Nightbreed, rated R. Clive Barker's 1990 Dr. Decker, David Cronenberg's character, his mask. It's a twisted zipper mouth that looks like a burlap, but fits tight around the head, almost as if it's vacuum seamed. I, I love the look of this, and when he's wearing that gray suit with the tie, almost very much like a uh, a a hipster or a coffee house uh, beatnik that is trying to look like the man of the '60s. David Cronenberg mm-hmm. has a very felt, Langley body and a very long head, which just fills out this character beautifully. And the fact that he is a psychiatrist. Uh, also screams a little bit too, I would say probably inspirations for, and I don't know. Well, you know what? Actually, he did exist. So maybe Clive Barker ripped off the Scarecrow a little bit with this character from Batman. 
because Scarecrow had existed in the comics, I think, as early as the late 60s. Um, yeah, I love this look. This movie's a mess. People are like, yeah, but have you seen the director's cut? I'm like, yes, it makes it more of a mess. It's a longer mess. This was one that was on my honorable mentions. And you're right. There are a lot of wacky makeup effects and, and a lot of wacky masks in this. But Cronenberg's look as Dr. Decker is great. He's got the buttons on, on the eyes with the X's across, the zipper mouth. And uh, and Cronenberg is not typically an actor. And his like the way he comes off in this character is very stilted and kind of weird. And I think that adds to the uh, the effect of the doctor altogether. Yeah, I agree. He comes almost as off as if he could have been a um, a killer in a David Lynch production. Yep, yep. Okay, uh, my number five is from the worst on my list. This is not a good, not a good movie, but the the killer is awesome, and the name of the killer is awesome. The movie's from two thousand seven. It's called Drive Through. What would you like to order today? Do you want something meaty? Did someone say pork? Do you want it bloody? Would you like fries with that? On the scene of yet another grizzly murder. You don't believe anything I've told you. <laughs> it was a seven-foot clown chasing me with a meat cleaver. Why would someone dressed as Horny the Clown want to hurt your children? <laughs> I am the one person who might be able to stop him. Oh, not familiar. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know if I can sell you on drive-through, but we'll talk about it here for a second. The killer is named Horny the Clown. Ha <laughs> ha! So, so, again, this premise is ridiculous, but uh, there's a person that is killed and he comes back later on. He's killed near this burger joint called Hella Burger. Yes, set in San Diego, California. And years later, the killer comes back in clown form to kill the uh, sons and daughters of the people that killed him. So the premise is kind of cool, but I mean, the execution sure. is not great. A Nightmare on Elm Street. I've seen it before. <laughs> but the, the, the look of the killer is, if you're familiar with the PlayStation games Twisted Metal, it almost yes. looks like Sweet Tooth from Twisted Metal. So oversized big clown head with the fire hair coming off of it. But the way that the killer looks through the mask, or rather talks through the mask, is that the mouth is it's almost like one of those um, colander shapes. Like, okay. so he can talk through it with the holes, but the eyes still poke through. It's a very, very cool mask. It's a very, very bad movie. And even the poster <laughs> has like an axe coming down and chopping a burger in half with the ketchup coming out as like the blood. And the tagline is hungry for a killer meal. Not good. But the killer looks great. So don't watch drive through, but Go look at the pictures. I appreciate, actually, the idea that it's a clown wearing a mask, that it isn't just another either um, uh, latex rubber appliances around the eyes or the cheeks or something or the chin, that it is actual mask. I, yeah. I think that is something that isn't often done when clowns are killers in movies. That is a good point. Yeah, this is this is a full mask that he's got over his head. 
All right, number four, I'm going to do my, my first foreign film, and it's it's not a movie that is easy to combine, and this uh, writer-director, this auteur, his filmography usually is a little easier. I don't know why this one, which is his third film, kind of gets pushed aside. Uh, it is 1971's Dario Argento's third feature film after Cat of Nine Tales, Four Flies on Grey Velvet. An evening of darkness becomes an eternity of terror and suspense as a killer stalks the streets of a city in search of unsuspecting victims to quench his never-ending thirst for blood. So the mask, unfortunately, and this is why it's number four, the movie isn't terrible. But my dad, who is an apologist for bad plots, even at the end, was like, huh, well, that didn't make much sense. If that one character would have done this at the beginning, like, why did why did any of this get set in motion? And when my dad is poking holes at the plot, you know you have issues. Um, the, the mask only appears in this kind of very early on scene in the first 20 minutes. And the killer is dressed up wearing almost opera uh, gloves, white gloves, and a tuxedo. And he's wearing a what looks like a plastic, like a thick plastic with a, an elastic string. Peach-faced, like heavy-set man, but with like a cherub, but with a smile on his face. It's not a baby, but it's like a big cheek smiling, creepy plastic mask. And like I said, as cool as it is, and as cool as when it's introduced in the beginning of the movie, I know I was like, oh, this is great. This is what <laughs> this killer's going to look like. And this is 71. In horror films, there's not a lot of examples of masked killers where you have to guess who it is behind this mask at this point. One of the other ones that I can think of is actually closer to the top of my list that I'll mention later. But I was like, this is going to be awesome. And then they never use that iconography again. And I, I, I don't understand why he didn't through the rest of the movie, through the rest of the movie, the killer who is unseen, you see through POV and you see ducking behind things or just a shadow. They never, he just squandered this really good visual. It didn't bring it back for the rest of the movie. That is a mistake. Yes. That's one that I've been looking forward to checking out, but nobody's put it out yet. So um, yeah, like you said, hard to come by. I don't think you can write it on Amazon. I think the Blu-ray I ended up getting was in all regions. Oh, it's a it's a great company. I don't think it's Vinegar Syndrome, but it's like a yellow uh, Blu-ray case where they specialize in like releasing hard-to-find giallos. I'll go with one of the most bonkers movies on my list. Number four is from a movie called Cat Sick Blues from 2015. My name's Claire. My cat, Imelda, was an internet sensation. So you lost a cat too? Yeah. <sighs> Starting to learn life isn't all funny cat videos. There's no way I'm picking that much love and devotion to something again. Just have it all fall to pieces in an instant. <laughs> Has it gotten any easier? It has. What's your secret then? backpackers 
survivors were found last night, brutally murdered. You mean like, like he, he lives on inside of you? Yeah, guess I found a way of bringing him back. The killer wears a rubber cat mask, a big black rubber cat mask that covers his whole head. Uh, the the interesting thing about this, like I think the plot's pretty cool. Uh, this dude, Ted, his cat dies and the trauma of his cat dying triggers a mental breakdown in him and prompts him to start becoming his old cat. And he thinks that he needs to take nine human lives and then it will bring his cat back. So that, that's how ridiculous this is. It comes from a, a guy who, well, it stars Matthew C. Vaughn, who's an Australian actor who's in some really funny stuff. And I, I actually discovered a TV show that he was in called Dick Dribble <laughs> Basketball Pro P.I. about a guy who solves basketball related crimes in, in Sydney, Australia. So I'm going to catch up on that after this. But uh, Cat Sick Blues, it's such a weird movie. and. It's just this guy becoming this cat to the point where at some point he makes gloves with claws on them. So he's got the claw gloves. He's got this black cat mask, all practical gore effects, which is nice, uh, refreshing there. It's the narrative doesn't quite connect. I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but it's definitely an interesting movie. And if you're into stuff like uh, what was that Ryan Reynolds movie where he um, like he has voices in his I think it's just called voices. I think it's called voices. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're into stuff like that, the the weird animal related stuff, this is this is a solid pick from Australia. Cat Sick Blues from 2015. Mm. Yeah, I, I I've watched enough bad movies that don't sell me with the description that don't have the descriptions that you just said for your your first two. So <laughs> I I think those are worth checking out, even if I get to a point where I'm like, okay, this is a fast forward movie. Maybe I'll yeah. want to get through some of the longer parts. But usually, typically, those movies last between 88 minutes, 87 minutes, an hour and a half. So, why not? Especially after my wife has fallen asleep. Number three on my list. This uh, this has this doesn't have necessarily honorable mentions attached to it, but it has, I think, what it also inspired uh, in the horror genre uh, with it. Number three is the 1976, directed by Charles B. Pierce, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Mrs. Reed shot twice, but survived. This man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 30 and 40 years old. He wore a white hood and was known only as the Phantom Killer. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. Husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the Phantom Killer struck. Uh, are you familiar? I am, and I know what it exp- what it inspired in terms of Friday the 13th Part 2. Uh, <laughs> yes, that is one of the inspirations. <laughs> but so this is based on a true story of Texarkana, uh, a 1940s series of murders where the killer, I believe, was never found. They did a remake uh, not too long ago. The... The, the mask, uh, God, you know, and I thought I thought of another inspiration, but I'm not sure if I'm right. Have you ever seen The Toolbox Murderer? Oh, that's a sock hat. That's a sock hat. Yeah, I've seen that a long time ago, but I don't remember anything from it. 
But yeah, so this is a burlap sack with a string tied around the neck, rope tied around the neck with eye holes cut out. As you, as Jason mentioned, the Friday the two, Friday the 13th part two, Sackhead Jason. Uh, I love that look. I actually I prefer that look to some of the other uh, incarnations of Jason with the hockey mask. <laughs> um, I love that backwoods, especially when they rip it off with the overalls and the, and the flannel shirt. Um, Sam from Trick or Treat also has that burlap sack around his jack-o'-lantern shaped head. Uh, we also have the burlap look in The Strangers and its mm-hmm. sequel, as well as the collection, uh, The Collector also kind of yep. has that burlap sack look. So it is, there's definitely a reason why they think that inspires some terror, whether it's the implications. Well, actually, The Strangers look also looks like Dr. Decker from Nightbreed because it's a little yeah. bit of a tighter look and he's wearing the suit. Um, I, I don't necessarily know why that is a go-to, maybe because it's cheap and in a lot of ways it's shapeless. So it could be anybody under there and maybe it evokes uh, the carnage and the evil of a Ku Klux Klan uh, mask. I, I'm not sure why particularly, but the the town that dreaded sundown was definitely uh, one of the OGs that did this, and it's it's a pretty grisly film, especially if you follow the history of the actual murders that occurred that they did some uh, some news stories on. Yeah, this one was one that I thought of. Well, I thought of putting Sam from Trick or Treat on, and there's just so many good burlap sack killers. But yeah, I think the town that dreaded sundown was one of the first. It's interesting that you and I agree on that because I my first thoughts were Sackhead Jason from Part 2 and Sam. And then I was like, you know what? I weirdly don't feel right. I almost feel like someone that would say they'd prefer a Dane Cook joke over <laughs> the, the comedian that, that he stole it from. Um, <laughs> so I was like, all right, I got to go town the dreaded sun, sundown. Nice. That's a good pick. My number three, we'll go with a French film. You mentioned Argento, one of the kings of horror, and this film is from another king of horror, George Romero's Bruiser from the year 2000. We define ourselves by the lovers we seduce. I give you everything, everything I've got. What more do you want? The careers we pursue. It's like yesterday's pizza. Shorty kind of balls around here, you get a pink slip. Let's rock and roll. The cars we drive. Come on, baby. Jesus Christ. And the masks we wear. That's you. I think it's cool. I can see myself. Yes, but can you make other people see you? Henry wanted to redefine himself. Paint it. Color it. Whatever you think might make people recognize that it's you. See if you can work on your image. And that is exactly what he did. Henry, your face. It's real. Bruiser is a story about a, like, this real sad sack pushover guy who's, like, nobody respects him. His dog doesn't even respect him. His wife's cheating on him. His boss doesn't give a shit about him. And he's just like really in the dumps. And he becomes a killer when he wakes up one morning and his face is essentially turned into a blank white mask. And there's something so chilling about this mask. It's like a plaster mask over his face with no expression, but the eyes are cut out and they're very tiny holes cut out in the eyes. And I think that's what makes it so chilling and he kills people behind this expressionless mask. For those who like 
the movie You're Next, which has the plain white animal masks. It's a very similar vibe or one that I think might come up on your list later just based on some hints that you said. So I don't want to reveal that title here yet, but if you don't talk about it, it'll be on my honorable mentions. This mask is also very similar, and I knew we we weren't going to be going into television. But if anybody's ever watched FX's or Ryan Murphy's, uh, one of his early shows, Nip Tuck, The Carver. Oh, yeah. a mask very similar to this, and I think that is one of the scariest portrayals that it's pre-Dexter of a serial killer that has been portrayed on TV in Dexter. I mean, this was semi-basic cable because it was FX. It wasn't even a Showtime, but it's it's very much uh, looks like this, like those old theater masks. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, there's also a uh, Twilight Zone episode with a very similar mask, too. So that right. all white expressionless stuff is popular. Well, I'm now I'm interested to know if if you're guessing my honorable mention. It's a little <laughs> bit of a curveball as far as being horror, but it it looks kind of similar to this bruiser mask. I'm gonna make sure to bring up my prediction in the uh, honorable mentions if we don't get to it. Yes, yes, yeah, mention, well, yeah, yeah, Me- mention it before I mention my honorable mentions to see if if you mentioned it correctly. Mention. I will say that Bruiser, in terms of all the films on my list, aside from my number one, Bruiser is definitely the best film. It's a solid horror movie, and it's got some good gore. I mean, George Romero's behind it, so, you know, you know that you're in good hands with this one. The George Romero pedigree, and uh, I was always so happy when he got to break out of his living dead bubble. I will then go to number two, and... I think this may be, I mean, maybe we're not going to have any cross-pollinization <laughs> uh, because you're picking some more recent movies, which I dig. Because I'm, I'm someone who I, I admittedly get stuck in the past because I have a theory that older movies, even if they're not good, they have more of a charm and they're more palatable because they were trying to make a good movie. And I feel sure. some of these indie horror movies, especially a lot of ones that appear on Shudder, while making the production, like, we don't have a big budget. We ain't got much. These, act- these actors ain't too good. They're one step above porn, or they've done porn. Uh, even if it's bad, we'll just say we made it bad on purpose. And yeah. so, like, they're, like to go to bring back The Room, or even, like, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Plan 9 from Outer Space is considered the worst movie of all time. It's not even Ed Wood's worst movie. So... <laughs> The one thing with Ed Wood is like he was trying to make good movies and that comes across and that's why they're so damn entertaining. Anybody who, while making a schlock, if they're like, we know this sucks and who cares, that shows. I agree. Number two, is this the one that we cross on? Alice, sweet Alice. Brooke Shields. In Holy Terror. Alice was too old to play with dolls and too young to make love. Brooke Shields, as you've never seen her before. She was too beautiful to play with boys and too young to play with men. So Alice began to play with death. Oh, this one's on my honorable mentions only because I've talked about it before on the show. It's phenomenal if you can stumble upon it and not read anything about it and go in with low expectations also released under the title holy terror one of brooke shields first movies uh, even though she's not in it a ton 1976 alfred soul uh it, the mask is a clear kind of hazy 
frosted mask. You've seen a ton of these. They're very generic. Uh, it's plastic with that kind of elastic band that I mentioned before. A lot of eyeshadow, eyebrows, and heavy lipstick. It is surrounded by the hood of a yellow rain slick. Mm-hmm. And it is worn by uh, the the visual of a, of a small person, of a child. Very similar to, and I believe it came out beforehand, uh, oh shit, what is it called? Not, oh, uh, what's the Julie Christie Donald Sutherland movie? Where he oh, don't look now, don't look now. Um, a movie yep. that I enjoyed until the ending. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't understand how how that one gets regarded so heavily. Where the ending, I was just like, what? <laughs> yeah. um, but Alice, sweet you'll Alice never forget it. <laughs> no, 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 I won't. Uh, Alice, sweet Alice. On the other hand, I was watching it and I was like, ooh, this is a gritty, dirty movie. Like this, this feels like maniac or you know a lot of those other late 70s early 80s horror movies that were shot for a dollar and a ham sandwich uh (laughs) i love how dirty it is in the weird characters that it has like that obese neighbor there's something really off-putting about it not just because of his weight but as the movie progresses you do get a little bit to a lull where you're like okay what's going on we know it isn't this thing that you're shoving in our face that we're, everybody else in the movie is like, yep, this is the killer and this is what's going on. So get to the reveal. There's a shot where the camera goes to an exterior where it pulls back from the house uh, or from the apartment building they all live in, which looks like a multifamily house. And you feel like the movie's over. And you're like, huh, well, that wasn't very satisfying. And then there's another 30 minutes that just gets more bonkers. And like, as the camera was pulling away and my brother and I were waiting for the credits to roll, I was like, oh man, that was kind of disappointing. They did the reveal and then that was it. And then the movie kept going and I was like, oh, there's more. And we pressed pause and we're like, oh, there's a lot more. And then it just kept, I thought, I thought it just kept on roller coastering. And it, I mean, kind of like what we're trying to do with All Your Friends Are Dead, where it went to what I thought was the logical place of, that the movie should end, even though I didn't like it, but it didn't stop. It got a little weirder. Yep. And I, yeah, I love the, the, just the mask of that because it is so generic. Yeah. I love Alice, Sweet Alice. I've talked about it on this show before. It's expertly made. I thought the the writing was actually really good. Like it it doesn't telegraph who that killer is and it will keep you guessing until the end. There's some great shots in this, like a knife that falls from a staircase and just like sticks in the wood is one that I just I think it's masterfully made. It's a great movie. As much as I said before, I think uh I think I mentioned De Palma and him getting so when critics liked what De Palma did, they would say, ah, not an auteur since Alfred Hitchcock. Has there been anyone like Brian De Palma? And then when they hated what he did, they would go, Brian De Palma rips off Hitchcock and his derivative at every chance he gets. So Alice, Sweet Alice, like you were talking about the cinematography and some of the shots and the visuals, I think it's very Hitchcockian by some of the aerial yeah. shots and the way they play with the manipulation of who the killer is and the size of the killer. Um, I will say the reveal as much as I was for it, and it it isn't a reveal, and then the reveal of who it is, the person's killed, which often happens a lot with 
so like don't look now when they make that reveal the movie's over like right after that and this as i mentioned the reveal happens and then we get to see who this character actually is and why they're doing these killings and then we follow them for about i think two or three more killings which makes it very interesting and fun to follow and even though i don't the reveal i was i was still a little bit like what who's this character <laughs> and then they explain it i'm like okay you're explaining it now but you're lucky you have another 30 minutes all right my number two is my uh my furthest back in terms of time it's from 1983 it's from a movie that had pretty poor critical reception but i actually think it's kind of endearing it's called curtains behind every curtain someone is waiting something is watching Starts Friday at a theater near you. And the mask is the hag. Have yes. you seen Curtains? I have. And that is a movie where, unlike the Friday the 13th movies I've mentioned or some other uh, slasher movies of the 80s, I feel the first 50 minutes are phenomenal. And then that yeah. last 30. And I think there's actually some history behind that of like th some of the cast, they couldn't get back to finish the movie. <laughs> and I, th I think there's a legit reason of why it's very messy in the third act. But that is one of those that it did like the reverse of a lot of other low budget horror movies of the 80s where I really dug it throughout most of it. And then it lost me on the on the on the landing. But yeah, that mask is phenomenal. It's uh, about these six people that go to this producer's house or director's house, rather. They are trying to be in this big budget movie and they're all auditioning for the same part. And then while in this mansion, people start getting picked off one by one as people in slashers are. But the mask that the killer is using is it's called the hag mask, but it's this old woman mask with this flowing red hair that almost looks like it almost looks like a... Uh, version of michael myers mask but melted and mm -hmm. it's really saggy and and gross looking and i think it even adds to the horror aspect that the mask is a little bit too big for the person's head it doesn't fit well it no like it does not those, fit well it looks like one of those old people silicone masks where the necks are really long and you would tuck that into a shirt exactly but, yes, but they don't it, it tuck it yeah and it, yeah they don't tuck it and it still looks like two sizes too big yeah it is it's a horrifying mask and there's some great shots of it in the movie of this person running around with a scythe killing people one of the best is if you want to just youtube and not watch the whole movie is an ice skating scene where oh, it's the best it's out in broad daylight and the way that the uh the sun glistens off the ice off of the scythe and then off of the mask as the person, whoever the the stunt person was wearing the mask, uh, playing the killer, and the and that scene is so gracefully moving around that ice rink, chasing its kill. It's it's pretty comical while also being terrifying. Yep, and that is one shot. That is one scene that was added after the fact, just like that uh, you were talking about with the troubled production. That one was yeah. added later, and it's a good thing they did because you're right. It's the best kill in that movie. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I from what I remember. 
So uh, this one isn't an honorable mention, but Tourist Trap with Chuck Connors. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. Yeah, and Tanya Roberts. Um, there are too many masks. And I know there's that one uh, classic one that's on the box, but that is another movie that it had me for most of the movie. And then they, an expression I like to use, especially when writing a script or reading a script or dissecting a scene, like if we're getting ready to film it and collaborating with the crew, is like, okay, this is a hat on a hat on a hat. And Taurus Trap had that. Like, it's like, it's a masked killer. It's a masked killer with a twin brother. It's a masked killer with a twin brother with telekinesis. <laughs> like, it's, You're it's doing too, too much. much. Yeah, you had us with masked killer in Wax Museum at this Taurus Trap. Like, just use your title. You're good. Numero uno. Uh, we did. I don't think we're going to cross pollinate. I think because I don't think we are. If 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 um, if curtains is the far to this back you go, this is the oldest between the two of us. Number one. Look, does it beat Michael? Does it beat Leatherface? I mean, Leatherface. Look, he's wearing the mask is his victims. So probably Leatherface wins. Ultimately, that's a gnarly mask. But the look of this in the year that it came out, again, has inspired so many classic visuals like uh, The Question in DC or Rorschach's Mask in The Watchmen. It is 1964, Mario Bava's another foreign Italian film, Blood and Black Lace. A house of high fashion, a dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. <coughs> who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy? This holocaust of lives. In bleeding color. Shattering, shivering, shocking experience. Oh, this was not the one I was guessing you were going to go with. Nice. Uh, so if, if you're not familiar with the movie, the killer wears a very uh, film noir black trench coat, black dress pants, black shoes, black driver's gloves, the classic leather black driver's gloves that are so uh, synonymous with giallos as much as JB whiskey. The mask underneath this black neo-noir like fedora is thicker than pantyhose because it's not just pantyhose like you'd go in to rob a bank, you know, if you were going to rob a bank. Uh, it's almost like four pairs of pantyhose. It's very thick. You can't see through it. It's not translucent at all. It's expressionless cloth face where you can see that there's a nose and that there's a chin under it. And there's some slight sinkage around the eye holes, around the sockets. But you just can't see anything. And there's a part of me that has to think that it also inspired John Carpenter and Deborah Hill when they ended up landing on the Michael Myers mask and just calling it the shape because they just wanted it to be this non-distinguishable thing. And luckily the God, they were originally, have you seen the, the clown mask they're originally going to pick? No. 
yeah, when it was originally called Babysitter Murders, uh, there's a production photo of this clown mask that they picked that they held it next to the William Shatner mask before they altered it. And Deborah Hill and John Car- Carpenter asked the crew and uh, the, um, the, what is it? The Akkads were like, which one scares you more? And they were like, William Shatner's Star Trek mask is terrifying. <laughs> and so they went with that. Thank God they didn't pick the rubber clown mask, even though it appears on your list and is definitely uh, the fear of clowns would, would emerge later with it. Blood and Black Lace just has this sleek, cool look that, yeah, the character's wearing a mask, and you see him very well lit. This movie's full of color. It is on Amazon Prime. The opening credit sequence where they introduce you each character, they're each given their own color, and it's very reminiscent of Clue. So, like, you have a... a character that is in purple, that is in green, very similar to the opening of Batman, the 1966 Batman movie with how they do with cl- uh, color and they introduce those characters. But then you have this killer that is drained of color and drained of a face and you get a good look at him. There's no way you can guess who the killer is. Yeah, that's uh that's a great pick. I, I think if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen this one, go check it out. If you look at any like, top horror movies of all time 100 list this is going to be on all of those lists it's a really good movie i would pick i would pick blood and black lace over the one that does get picked a lot because the other one influenced uh, a lot of kills in friday the 13th which is holy shit now i'm blanking because it has like three oh, names. Uh, bay, of, bay of blood bay of yes most commonly released as bay of blood uh that movie has a bonkers opening 30 minutes and a very con- convoluted plot that by the end you're like, yeah, they had a lot of kills, but you were struggling to hold me on with any form of narrative. Uh, Blood and Black Lace. What a great title. Uh, it's about someone killing models and trying to recover a little black book with secrets listed in it. It's a very simple plot, but it is beautifully shot and definitely using the technicolor of the day. My number one is from the best movie on my list. And I will go as far as to say that it is one of the best horror movies of the 21st century. Ooh, so after the year 2000, okay. Yep, the movie is 2007's The Orphanage. Simon! Simon! Disappearance. A dark place. And the games children play. Mask is worn by little Tomas. 
This is a Spanish film. It's a Spanish language film. So you're going to have to toss those subtitles on. But trust me, it will be worth it. Do not watch the dubbed. Do not watch the, the dubbed version. <laughs> no. It's not. You, you will not get the same sensation. Read the subtitles. Yeah. It's about a woman who has a son. And her son starts seeing these imaginary friends. So she goes and moves back into the orphanage that she grew up in. And uh, she, her son goes missing. And Tomas, this kid wearing almost like a, a sack type of mask, is also in this, uh, in this orphanage. And I don't want to give any more than that away. Just know <laughs> that. So he's got this hooded sack, almost like the town at Dreaded Sundown. Mm-hmm. But it's got a mouth cut out slash drawn on it and a nose like childlike nose kind of drawn on it and then it's got hair on top that is just plastered on and he's wearing this blue almost like a gown type of outfit and it is horrifying it is an expertly shot movie the film was directed by um jay biona who it's a it's a bit of a shame because Obviously, he's so talented that Hollywood wanted to pay him a bunch of money to make Hollywood movies, and he got wrapped up in the Jurassic, the new Jurassic series, Jurassic mm-hmm. World. Uh, and I, I really hope that at some point he gets to go back to these horror roots because The Orphanage is a fantastic horror movie, and Tomas is a great character design. I think the best way that uh, I described for me that mask to someone is. It is sackhead meets Leatherface, especially with yeah. like the the hair added on and like the eye uh, over the one that's not cut open. Yeah, that is it's 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 important for American audiences that maybe don't have the dual language or that sometimes have a hard time reading subtitles, and that's not an excuse. Uh, <laughs> is to have these striking visuals that can pull you in and actually make you want to read and follow along with the movie and give these movies the respect that they deserve. Yeah. This one is so, so good. Uh, I had a couple honorable mentions. I know you did as well. What were some of those that narrowly missed your list? I want to So you had one that you were going to guess. Oh yeah. I was guessing when you started talking about, um, so I had talked about Bruiser and you said there was one from much earlier from the 60s. And I thought you were going to say Eyes Without a Face from 1960. Oh, I mean, that is phenomenal. And I almost added it. But I did um, I did Blood and Black Lace in its place because it, be- yep, it came, very similar. A little, came a little earlier. And then I also thought of before uh, Eyes Without a Face, I thought of this honorable mention, as I'll mention first. Uh, also made me think when you said bruiser is vanilla sky 2001 mm-hmm. cameron's crows adopt uh, adapted from the spanish film open your eyes uh, after an accident tom cruise's character who's a, a millionaire playboy wears an expressionless flesh mask to cover his scars that is supposed to help him heal but we find out that he is still beautiful tom cruise underneath it and it's all in his head and then we find out spoilers Movies 2001. And also, it's Cameron Crowe stepping out of his wheelhouse. It's got a great shot of New York City. Oh, it's shot of New York. Shots of New York City is the acting that he gets out of Jason Lee, Cameron Diaz, and Penelope Cruz. When he starts losing it, look, I'm a huge Monkees fan, and their music for a while wasn't appearing in a lot of things, and now it has in like Breaking Bad um, and, and a couple other TV shows. 
but when Penelope Cruz is turning back and forth into Cameron Diaz while she's having sex with Tom Cruise, and the Porpoise song from the movie Head, the Monkey's movie Head, written by Jack Nicholson, <laughs> kicks in. Oh, I already was in love with the movie, and then I was like, I love this even more. And my friends are like, this movie sucks. I'm like, you suck. <laughs> um, yeah, that movie has some great shots. That that yeah, just the visual of him in the mask and how it the mask kind of has a, a little bit of a stroke mouth to it as well. Um, yep, it's it's God. I don't even know how you would classify that movie. Maybe thriller suspense, but definitely falls under the subgenre of horror. Sure. Based on our our <laughs> based on our real <laughs> list, I don't think we're gonna cross, which is great. That's amazing that now there's people listening that are like, oh, I got a lot of movies to watch. Yeah, uh, no kidding. 1925, this is the earliest movie on the list, uh, honorable mention, uh, Phantom of the Opera, Lon Chaney. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, the, the reason why it definitely didn't make the list, it isn't that influential half-broken mask that is known in the musical and other incarnations, like Robert England's Phantom of the Opera. Um, it is, uh, a, it's kind of like a, a cherub mask with high cheeks that covers the top half of his face and over the top bridge of his mouth and he also wears a skeleton mask during during the masquerade part but the reveal and what he looks like underneath is way more memorable and seen in visuals for promotion of that silent film than the mask so that is why it didn't make the list for masks uh fantastic movie go back and watch all of lon cheney's silent films motel hell kevin connor 1980 Wearing a pig's head, an actual pig's head, as a mask. Farmer Vincent. And the reason why this didn't make the top list is it just happens at the end of the movie. It's not a, it's not the thing he's kind of wearing the whole time. And it's very reminiscent uh, of Saw, if you've seen that series. Yeah. Yep, I was going to mention that. I mentioned it before. The movie Haunt 2019. Uh, there are these great inside of this haunted attraction that turns out to be maybe a little scarier than just the, the fake scares they put together. There is a ghost, a clown, and a devil. And what's really cool about these masks, they're pretty generic, is, spoilers, if you don't want to hear this, skip forward 15 seconds. They are those things underneath the masks. They just isn't the mask. And finally, bringing up one of my favorite horror movies of all time, and I wish it got more love. It is the granddaddy of, I think, cult movies. Granted, Rosemary's Baby had already come out, so I guess that one really is the granddaddy. But 1975, Jack Starrett's Race with the Devil. Ooh. You have Peter Fonda and Warren Oates, who are traveling across country with their wives on a vacation in a Winnebago, in an RV, and... They pull off for the night and they tie one on. The wives go in. They're sitting out there being like, man, isn't this great? Enjoying the great outdoors, getting to relax. And off across the distance at the campsite, they see a giant fire start blazing. And they're like, what's going on over there? They're three sheets to the wind, as they probably were in real life. Warren Oates was known to be (laughs) a drinker. And I think Peter Fonda probably dabbled in enough other recreational uh, vices. They pull out some binoculars and they see there's people in robes. You know, no biggie. Then they see this guy who towers over all these other minions in robes. 
wearing this horned beast-like tusk mask with like fur on it and they pick up a young naked blonde woman and stab her to death over the fire and they make a little too much noise as they exclaim after seeing this and the cult sees them and now the wheels are set in motion literally and figuratively for them to be racing from the devil for the rest of the movie that's a good pick. Race Race with the Devil was one that I didn't even think about because I think of it as like a road trip movie. But yeah, that definitely works. Well, it's that mask. And then again, it's not throughout. So that dings a little bit. But once you get to the reveal, you appreciate why they chose that kind of mask. And then sure. you think about the beginning and the next time you watch it, you're like, oh, I know who's under that. And look, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. A big reason why I edited it to my list last minute is I'm sitting right in front of uh, a second, uh, well, I guess it's called the second art or what is uh, B art for a movie poster. Oh, that yeah. has the, the cult surrounding the RV and the, the knife being plunged into the top of the RV with the big old horned mask character as he stands in flames. Oh, it's super cool. So, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of it either if it wasn't right behind me. (laughs) (laughs) Going back through the 2000s, we've got some really great masks in the very mediocre The Purge movies. Yeah. And the first movie, the first Purge movie with Ethan Hawke has these uh, these smiling plastic masks where everybody's smiling. It looks almost like the V for Vendetta type of smile. Those are really, really fun. and then there's this babyface cherub type of killer from Hills Run Red, which I think is a more recent horror movie. Mm-hmm. Very, very scary killer there. The other honorable mentions that I have on my list are a little bit further back. Dr. Decker, which we already talked about. Alice, Sweet Alice, which we already talked about. And then you brought up De Palma, but uh, Phantom of the Paradise, another oh, Phantom yeah. of the Opera, like really out there. Uh, it was almost like a horror comedy musical like to palma you mentioned uh drugs i think to palma was definitely on some when he <laughs> took well, on the, that one it's a futuristic like metallic version of the phantom of the opera mask yeah which is beautiful i was trying to think of some other slashers that had summer masks that had some masks and if there are any other cool reveals and i was kind of drawing a blank Were there any in the 70s that you can think of? One that I didn't put on my honorable mention list, but definitely comes to mind now is My Bloody Valentine with the gas mask. That is a fantastic one. I may have picked that. Oh, would I have would I have unseated anything in my top five? No, I wouldn't have unseated anything in my top five. Well, I don't know. Maybe I would have mentioned Nightbreed as part of the the sack sackhead killers sure like we dealt with the strangers and all those town that dreaded sundown man yeah my bloody valentine that gas mask is really really cool yeah and it, it also is functional in the way that he uh takes people out which is kind of neat definitely yes definitely yeah i'm uh i think that for our listeners man we've got some really really great under the radar picks here with some definitely cool masks and i'm excited to to hear what other people have to say about this too online All this talk about masks 
has me excited for All Your Friends Are Dead. Go support indie filmmakers. Go to the Kickstarter right now. All Your Friends Are Dead. Get a shout out on social media. Get the Blu-ray. Like he said, 100 copies. Well, 99 after I get mine. Uh, We (laughs) get that exclusive commentary track. Support physical media while you support the filmmakers that should be making movies. And you already know this movie's got a great mask in it. So I'm really looking forward to that. Where can people find other things Ricky Glore? I I have... uh... I'm going to be teasing a little bit because you can't actually find it yet, but they will be released. Um, at least my first short film call will be released to the general public after the first of the year. Once it's done with its initial festival run, um, it has won quite a few awards that we're very proud of. One thing that both of my short films call and racist always get nominated for is best visual effects, best practical special effects. And that's done by the team that is working on All Your Friends Are Dead. And they just knock it out of the park. And I, I'm very fortunate to have them uh, working on this current project with me as well. But Call should be on my YouTube page after the first of the year once it's done wrapping up. And then Racist probably a few months later, uh, depending on... I submitted Racist to Sundance. It's a crapshoot. It was a lot of money to submit it, but you know... Why not? Why not try? Um, I, you can always follow me on Twitter at Ricky Glore, on Instagram at Glore Ricky, or Facebook, which is primarily my stand-up. But I will push and mention this Kickstarter and other projects. It's Facebook.com slash Ricky Glore Comedy. And just one more push for the, the Kickstarter of our goal is $5,000. That's very minimal. We've filmed more than half of the movie already. So this movie is happening. A lot of people have some knee jerks or some abhorrence to funding indie film on crowdfunding because a lot of them screw you. They never come to fruition. And that's why it was very important for us to make what we could of the movie with our own nickels and dimes and with the love and support of, of, of friends and talent, which we've, we've paid. We're, we're also doing this project where everyone gets paid. And part of that is then paying in post-production, paying this people who are going to score, do the music, do the foley, do the sound mix, do the color grading, uh, assist us with the editing. And then a lot of people don't think of this, but the festivals where we can get this in front of people's eyeballs to give it the opportunity for distribution or to be seen by anybody influential, it has to be submitted to festivals. And festivals are very costly, especially for feature films. Short films very costly on their own. Uh, even so much so that horror movie conventions, they cost a lot for you to submit your festival, and then they will charge you an entry fee to go see your film be screened. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to physically go to it and do a Q&A and rub elbows. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Our minimal goal is $5,000, but... The easy math you can do is if we sell out, which is our main goal of the Blu-ray, that's $8,000. They're 80 bucks a piece. You get all the other perks. You get the exclusive, the limited edition 100 copy Blu-ray, and you get us closer to the goal that we really want to reach, which is $8,000, which is nothing. And my last plea asking for you to donate and support Indie Horror is something I think you just 
touched on tonally, Jason, when you were talking about donating or contributing, really. Donating kind of sounds like we're down on our luck and we need your help. <laughs> True. <laughs> we want, we're not holding the metal tin can outside of our jail cell bars. <laughs> we want you to contribute. We want you to be an active member of original horror content. I'm not going to crap on Hollywood movies. I love Hollywood movies. I love what Blumhouse is doing. I'm loving what any big budgeted production. I love what Jordan Peele is doing. I love what David Gordon Green and Danny McBride are doing. I'm loving that the horror genre is no longer something that is dark and dirty. It is something that is starting to become universally uh, appreciated by the masses. And a lot of it is being approached with some poignancy that other auteurs like Wes Craven doing the people under the stairs uh, haven't done in a while. So I really love that. Just know this isn't me dogging on the fan films that get crowdfunded, but man, those things get like a hundred thousand dollars from very supportive horror fans. And I just hope that you can be as supportive for us because horror fans love to bitch online about how much they hate reboots and remakes. And they cry for originality. And they say, quit making remaking the classics bad. I hate the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. I hate the Friday the 13th remake. I hate the Rob Zombie Halloweens. Like, there are fans for each one of those properties. But the love it or hate it market of social media often screams loud with hate. And so if you if you are not happy that Hollywood is keeping on regurgitating to you what they think you want in the horror market, donate to an original new idea horror movie because that will just help breed new original horror ideas. It's cool to see Jason in the snow, but it's it's Jason, right? You're giving $100,000 <laughs> to that thing. So please do what you can to really light the fire of independent filmmaking because I actually think we're very close to a renaissance uh, not unlike the 90s with like Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, and Quentin Tarantino. Um, I think we're getting ready to hit another zenith with the way the pandemic allowed festivals for people to submit all around the world without having to physically go there and with having film festivals that you can stream through your house on the weekend and see movies that you might not have ever seen. Which one of those three are you, by the way? Uh, pfft. uh, uh, so, okay. If we had, if, if me and Nick Hyans, my, my co-director, uh, and the person who helped me develop the story, he was Robert Rodriguez in, in the, in the nineties, in the, in the two thousands, he regularly read rebel without a crew, without a crew mm -hmm. and used that as a template and a manual for how he filmed things. I would say. I probably am Kevin Smith. No, I'm not saying I'm Kevin Smith because those are mighty, mighty big shoes to fill. Um, because say what you will, if you're not a fan of him now, did you ever make Dogma? No, he did. And Dogma is fantastic, as well as I think Chasing Amy and I think Clerks. Um, I also think Red State is phenomenal. I oh, think, yeah, it's a great movie. I think Tusk is a great body horror movie and it's like it's perfectly a fun grindhousey kind of feeling movie yoga hosers wasn't for me 
just because I'm not really the demographic. I'm not a 14-year-old girl. But, like, when my daughter's old enough, I could totally see her gravitating towards that and having that be a gateway film for me to show her some other weird horror like The Gate or something. Um, But, so, yeah, it, it just... It always irks me a little bit when the horror fan base is angry at what is being presented to them rather than glomming together and being like, well, sure, you can do that, but hey, how about we look at like this new German movie that came, that just was released, uh, I think yesterday on VOD and DVD globally, The Last Matinee. Check something like that out instead of another Michael Myers fan film or I look, I love the Elm street series, but if anybody ever approached me to make an Elm street movie, I tell them, hell no, probably the only property that I would maybe touch. And I would have to come up with something very interesting and original in its own way is the phantasm series. Just because I, I do feel like is as well known as I think it is. I feel, I still think that is a series that isn't as popular as it should be. Well, you could do number six. <laughs> well, so what, what did you think of, <laughs> of that whole series as a series? I've seen the first two. I really liked the first one. I thought the second one was okay. I saw it when I was a lot younger and I haven't seen the other three. And I've actually been eyeing that big box that it's like a hundred bucks has all five and the, the sphere. And I've been thinking about picking that up. You can actually, and if, 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 if the sphere isn't the draw to you, there is a much cheaper uh, version of that that has all five films um, without all the fanciness and the presentation, which I think you can get for 40 bucks. That's a lot better. And That's it might have been better. through Best Buy. Yeah. And I definitely suggest watching all five kind of within a week. And is as, as messy as five <laughs> is... And if you look up any of the history on it, you're like, wow, it's, it's amazing the movie ever got made. Um, if you're not kind of shedding a tear by the end of five, I would be surprised. Okay. All right. Lofty expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the difference between you and I, though, is like Phantasm 2 to me is like Terminator 2, where <laughs> okay, it was bigger, like more action filled than the first one. Um, I def I think you're gonna re I think you're gonna like rewatching Phantasm two more now that you're a little older. I hope you're right. And Phantasm right. three definitely has a Return of the Living Dead vibe. Ooh, see now I'm intrigued. So we've got all kinds of new movies to watch. Listen horror films, <laughs> horror, films. horror films. Listen horror. <laughs> yeah, you talk Listen to, to those horror movies. films. You, get them. <laughs> you bad horror movies. Listen horror fans. Put your money where your mouth is. All Your Friends Are Dead, Kickstarter is live now. Go check it out. Support your indie filmmakers. And let's make Ricky Glore's movie a reality. Well, it's already being made, but let's uh, <laughs> let's make it easier. Let's make it easier. Yeah, let's make it bigger and better. And then a final push on the Blu-ray is who knows when the movie will actually come out for a wide distribution. Because once we have it in festivals, uh, we're hoping the movie is completed probably uh it's going to be wrapped filming and there's going to be a work print edit 
by the end of November. We're hoping with scoring and everything, post-production, that the film is done no later than April. We'll be then submitting it to festivals in May, June, July, and August. The Blu-ray will come out between August 2022 and October 2022. That, Unless you get that, you're one of those hundred people, or you're, you're greedy and you buy more than one copy, which that's on you. If you want to if you want to, uh, what is it, In Search of Darkness, that horror documentary where people bought them and then sold them on eBay for like twice the cost. I hope you don't do that. I hope you buy multiple copies and you give them as presents. But that's the only way you're guaranteed to see this movie within the next year or so. Because if it gets picked up by a distribution, then it's out of our hands. They get to decide when it gets repackaged, when it gets put out, where it gets put out, and how it gets put out. So if you want it to put out, if you want it to be like a high school, a high school kid on prom night and you want it to put out earlier. Well, I mean, (laughs) I would hope you're high school age too. look, don't read into it too much. It was a bad (laughs) analogy that I shouldn't have started. Uh, Get the Blu-ray. The episode is over, so I need you to do two things. Number one, go check out the Kickstarter for All Your Friends Are Dead. Support indie filmmakers. And then once you've done that, head over to wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate and review the Force 5 Podcast. Let me know which masks we missed on social media. Force 5 Pod on Twitter, Force 5 Podcast on Instagram. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears, the top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some movies with cool masks. Force 5.